0: Welcome to another episode of the greatest pod where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ed Greer and I'm producer Bill and today we're going to discuss
1: greatest duos and pop culture. Oh yeah, I mean basically only behind greatest trios as far as something so important to the world of pop culture. Greatest quads.
0: <laughs> that goes to the She-Hulk.
1: Anyway. <laughs> oh, hey, love it. <laughs> Wordplay.
0: <laughs> um, I I really think that duos, uh, just to start the conversation off, I think that duos are integral to comic books because often you need someone there to remark upon how fresh the hero is. I think I've recounted several times in my early screenplays, I would just have a character that was just like, Jubei Kibagami times Indiana Jones times Godzilla just run roughshod through the whole story and no one was there to go, damn, that was really cool character. Mm. Or, or, wow, you should try it this way. Oh, thanks, old chum. Whatever. Th- there's just a dynamic of having your hero have someone to talk to when we're looking at things on the screen or on the comic book page wherein a lot of times internal monologue is either downplayed or can't be part of it because it's a movie or something duos really help to to elucidate the action to to give you the stakes to um give you how rough this would be if you didn't have a partner you know Mm -hmm. most partner movies if they were there by themselves they'd get messed up so it just graduates the whole thing when there's
1: a duo i agree i also think there's a distinction to be drawn between duo and sidekicks Because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what you're talking about in terms of having a sounding board, having a devil's advocate, whatever it might be, that's a role that can be filled by a sidekick. But I think what elevates the concept of a duo is now when you truly have a dual protagonist, you have two forces that the audience could ostensibly be rooting for who might find themselves against each other or at loggerheads. And I think Mm -hmm. that that creates a whole wrinkle in the story that your traditional hero with a thousand faces type story just doesn't have. That idea Mm -hmm. that, oh, there are two people with equal importance who might equally be right and equally true to their own wants, needs, desires, and yet that one or both of them are going to have to put that aside in order to get whatever the bigger issue is fixed. And I like that a lot as a story element. So I think
0: what I'm talking about is Batman and Robin and what you're talking about is Tango and Cash.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Although famously Tango and Cash have very little to distinguish between the two of them. Perhaps <laughs> perhaps more of a Riggs and Murtaugh is what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, def- definitely by like the, the second movie, Murtaugh the freaking sidekick though. But yes, that is an interesting creep that happens with duos, you know. Uh, so – Okay, let's talk about them. They are an OG uh, duo, and that is Riggs and Murtaugh. I personally love the first movie more than all the rest of them for obvious reasons. But I think the the main obvious thing is Riggs is a human being with a set of skills and a lot of mental problems. And Danny Glover is a human being that's just trying to play out the string, not trying to do too much risky stuff, and then he's got this guy who – I mean, he's black, and he's approaching retirement, and his his white partner is the guy who's gonna live, even though he wants to die. It's it's it sparked an idea. I, I kicked it to this. Uh to this guy I was like, I'm, I'm going to write a movie about a guy who realizes he's the black guy that has to die or he's a supporting character that has to die <laughs> to, you know, so he's trying to go through the adventure as safe as possible and <laughs> messing everything up. <laughs> I mean, the OG would be this thing and, and and it would be really easy for them to have written the story to where Murtaugh is just some bum and he's not, he doesn't have all this agency. But the first one really is, I don't know, it's, it's a lot Murtaugh story. About, you know, you know, so I just think the first lethal weapon really shows you the idea of crazy person and family man and how they have a unique alchemy to do adventures. Whereas the next ones are Murtaugh going, God damn, Riggs, that was great. God damn, Riggs, that was great.
1: It's not so much a partnership for the rest of the movies. Agree with that completely. And yeah, when I think about it, I do think about the first one where they each kind of have their own weighty storyline Murtaugh with his family and Riggs with his suicidality. And the way that that sort of ties together in that movie is that ultimately Riggs is trying to get over the death of his wife and it's Murtaugh that sort of provides him with a surrogate family and a place to belong that the death of his wife left him without. And so it's sort of that whole idea of reconciling grief, reconciling coming to the end of something in the case of Murtaugh, you know, his career with, you know, what you can get from other people. And so Murtaugh stays on the force. Riggs finds a new family. And in that synthesis, the story finds its conclusion, you know? Yes.
0: And that's why they're on this list. Also, I got to say, it just came to me and maybe it's just simple Oreo cookie thoughts, but um, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. Yes. Uh, as detective, uh, detective Mills and um, Somerset or rather Somerset and Mills. Cause uh, uh, Morgan Freeman is Somerset. I, from seven. That's a great duo. I think it does what Lethal Weapon does, but with like it's like if it's like what if limit what if um Lethal Weapon took a limitless pill or something?
1: Oh yeah. Look, I mean, I, I also want to quibble a little bit with the characterization of Riggs and Murtaugh as being the first of that sort of duo. Because honestly, like the only thing Lethal Weapon did was it kind of took seriously the thing that was played for laughs in like Starsky and Hutch. And then even Starsky and Hutch was essentially just saying, what if we took the odd couple and stuck them in a police procedural? You mm-hmm. know, so it almost like the whole thing almost goes back to Walter Matthau and John Lennon or John Lemon in the odd couple. And then even that goes further back into freaking vaudeville acts like Laurel and Hardy. So mm-hmm. it's just funny how like this entire concept of the, of the duo or the deuteragonists in fiction, right. Goes all the way back to, you know, traveling, traveling uh, vaudeville shows. Um, Mm -hmm. Not to just, not to discount from your point at all, but yes, I think when you do trace that lineage, you end up with something like Mills and Somerset in seven.
0: Well, yeah, and I think I think the thing that um it's whenever something is is reintroduced as a new thing, there's always some wrinkle on it. Right. Because mm-hmm. you could say like, oh, Taylor Swift isn't isn't interesting, which you could certainly say. But you could say that her career isn't unprecedented because of fucking Doris Day or whoever the hell. <laughs> but the spin that she put on it, like talking to basically women, M.P.C. youth with this collection of cliches of you know like you dumped me but i'm better than you something you know th- that 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 whole just section of just drag and drop responses and emotionality she like took control of our generations that
1: mm-hmm. and
0: i think um Mur- Mur- uh, murtaugh and riggs kind of come from a from a place where i mean imagine how they would be in serpico You know, Mm -hmm. uh, imagine how they would be in the 60s and imagine how they'd be in the 50s. So it's like in the 80s, there was finally this this ability for the black dude to be an authority figure and an older like wise guy, but then still have this loose cannon dude that they could see each other as equals. and shit. I'm I'm thinking about like how I really wish we could have seen a real true modern Tonto and Lone Ranger. Because they weren't equals. Tonto was definitely a sidekick. He was basically a super horse as far as how the narrative treat, treated <laughs> him. Brutal, uh, but yes. <laughs> it's brutal, but it, it is what it is, you know? Yeah. And I think w- what different world could we have of these kind of partners linking up if we had it kind of grocked earlier that men have been able to be friends across racial and social and class lines? for a long fucking time and it just never really gets depicted and like in the eighties comes around and it's finally okay to, you know, have, have them be in that level of partnership where one isn't, you know, subservient to the other and stuff. So I think it's, it's, uh, that's why it's Mm kind of struck me as this sort of a, a bellwether of our changing idea of what a buddy cop thing could be. Uh, But yes, you're right. It's an evolution of the form, not a, not an originator. So in that respect, um, Somerset Mills, I got to say, the intellectuality of the older cop. A lot of times the older cop is more experienced, but they don't normally portray him as actually a genius or smarter than the young cop. Usually he's sort of a – not necessarily a coward, but certainly more cautious and maybe will have an old school way of doing something where he won't be able to da-da-da-da-da. I just think in Somerset Mills you have an actual genius – But The fire of youth is what stirs Somerset to complete this. He finds out it's a big case that is a serial killer, but I don't know, man. If he doesn't have this kid chomping at the bit, I don't know if he just doesn't let it go. I don't know if he just goes, oh, well, he'll get to seven, then he'll be done. Oh, well. But Mills chomping at the bit and like pushing him and challenging him to push himself to do extra legal stuff to get on that FBI watch list with Homeboy's, you know, um, <laughs> library card to kick open the door to go into his apartment. You know, all these things that Mills does to push the story help Somerset's genius to shine. Maybe I'm being too uh, highfalutin on it, but I think that's a cool thing about their relationship.
1: No, but I also think that. It- it's sort of the same thing uh, with Riggs and Murtaugh where it's like, you're, you're keying in on the fact that kind of the two halves make a whole. Yes. They're, they're filling in parts of the other person that they're where there might be gaps that that character themselves don't even see the gaps. And it's Mm. sort of like the purpose of this story is to fill in those gaps and sort of show the other person what it is they're missing that is filled by the, by their partner. Um, ends a lot more tragically in seven than it does in lethal weapon but i do think mm-hmm. that's a a clutch element of any great duo story is that idea of it's almost like a romance you know what i mean like at the mm-hmm. end of the day it, it's a little bit jerry Maguire. you complete me um, <laughs> you know just without the sexual overtones or at least overt <laughs> sexual overtones <laughs>
0: show me the retirement
1: uh,
0: but i i totally agree with that so in that spirit are there any duos that maybe if we say obviously i would have to mention reggie hammond and jack gates from uh from uh, uh 48 hours which mm-hmm. i think it just doesn't it does it gets the credit for being a duo and being sort of that uh salt and pepper duo that they liked in the 70s and and early 80s But I got to say, it really blew open the doors of what a duo could be and how characters could complete each other, because Reggie's not a cop. He's a wild uh, convict, you know, uh, Jack Kate's words, running around searching for his own ends, trying to get some money that he's owed from other fucking criminals who just happen to be on a crime spree. And he knows a little bit to help a cop to track him down. But basically, they're just running around willy nilly and. As I talked about in in the episode I did with Anastasia about um, Eddie Murphy, is Eddie Murphy the greatest? When Eddie Murphy adopts the power of the cop, when he says, Jack, give me your badge, and I'll go in and intimidate these crackers in this bar. It's just, that's an explosion in a lot of people's minds about what's possible. Like, people talk about representation. I don't need no representation to be standing next to some white motherfucker and just be like, hey, I'm here. I need him to go. You shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know what I mean? I need him to I need yeah. him to be impactful upon the situation. And Eddie Murphy was that. And it was like him showing like what it's like to have somebody come into a place that they're ridiculously outnumbered and just bluster their way through because they have some authority, some ephemeral authority of a badge or something that being wielded by a black dude, man, I got to say, man, it's a moment
1: for your ass. (laughs) I can see how that would be the case. I mean, (laughs) bringing up 48 hours brings up sort of that whole genre of eighties, nineties action duos, which really was kind of a heyday for the type of story we're talking about, because Mm -hmm. that also brings to mind like white men can't jump. Um, That also brings to mind what was it? oh money train, which is sort of one of my favorite <laughs> underrated, you know, forty eight hour rip offs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think obviously forty eight hours with Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte is probably the the purest distillation of that post lethal weapon formula. Uh, but that was going strong in Hollywood for a number of years. Uh, yeah, and also
0: um, I don't know. I think I think um, I think. I think 48 hours predates um Lethal Weapon, but point still oh, stands. It's really? it's yep. It's one of those things where I think that you talk about the duos, right? Everybody yeah. having to be on equal footing. Do you th- do you think that it's necessary to be called someone's partner for it to be truly equal? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like there there are people we call partners, like I, I don't know, hmm. Batman and Robin call each other partner. And the greatest stories, they actually are. And some hmm. of the more simplistic ones for kids and stuff, there has to be, hey, man, that was great. Yeah, you got it, chum. I'll give you a boost over this wall. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that type yeah, of yeah. shit. It just depends on how how the maturity dial, how is it turned for the story, whether he's a sidekick or a, or a partner.
1: I think that's one of the great advantages of sort of the never-ending nature of comic books, because, yes, to, I guess, just to repeat what you said, you know robin starts as a sidekick very much subservient to batman and then grows into any number of other things relative to batman and i think you see the other great thing about comics like duos kind of take shape naturally sometimes and i'm thinking i don't know that they're my favorite but like certainly a classic comic book duo is something like blue beetle and booster gold who were two characters who were created in wildly different times Uh, you know famously booster Gold, or excuse me blue beetle uh was created as part of the charlton stable of superheroes purchased by dc sort of like slowly integrated into their universe and then booster gold was made up whole cloth in the late 80s by dan jurgens uh i think as part of just to round out the justice league international at a certain point um so like it those are two characters that were never meant to be partners and have never officially been partners in the capacity of like, I choose you to go out and do daring do with. But like they ended up becoming a duo just because comics kind of are good at, at finding duos that work. Green Arrow, mm. Green Lantern even comes to mind for that.
0: Yeah, I think. uh, And it's just a testament to how great Green Arrow is because uh, Green Lantern sucks ass and ruins everything he's involved with. And uh, the fact that we even talk about it in reverent tones, I mean, obviously, you know, Neil Adams drawing the hell out of it and uh, Denny O'Neill bringing certain subjects to to comic book light really makes it good too but geez louise yeah what a bummer green lantern
1: Yeah, i I will say in the conversation of the greatest duos like blue beetle booster gold and green arrow green lantern neither one makes my list but i'm just using them to illustrate a point i think (laughs) how about fire and ice what are we doing here (laughs) oh man yeah comics didn't really get into a rut where they were just looking for duos at a certain point huh
0: Uh, jimmy and joey um uh basically i i think um one of the ones as we as we glide into comic books we'll we'll save some of the batman robin talk for a little bit later but Mm. i think along those lines of people who are their own heroes and they choose to hang out together and they choose to have their lives intertwined i've never been a big fan of it because my main boy that i love so much Pales co- It pales a comparison to the other one. But when Spider-Man and Daredevil hang out, mm. there is something cool about it. There's something elemental about it. I've told it before. One of my favorite comic book memories as a little kid was watching all of the Earth basically fight Galactus in midtown Manhattan. And Daredevil and Spider-Man sitting on a roof eating hoagies talk about, man, we ain't going to jump into that shit. <laughs> there ain't no motherfucking way. We're going to take our ass down there to fuck with them doing all that shit. Thor's down there. Iron Man, they, they got it let's just sit over here and make sure nobody gets robbed during this. You know yeah. I mean? yeah, It was, it was interesting. And it just showed like they are on this level of street superhero. I just, I like them hanging out. I like them knowing each other's
1: uh, identities and shit. I just like it. It's mm-hmm. really cool. Well, and I, I think that is sort of the birth of the Marvel street level superhero too. When you think about it, I mean, obviously Spider-Man and daredevil have both always been street level, but it took the moment of going like, Wait a minute. These guys would encounter each other and they are on the same level. And why wouldn't they hang out to really cement the idea that Marvel has those tiers of like, you've mm-hmm. got your Fantastic Four. And, you know, I've always liked Spider Man and Johnny Storm being friends but mm-hmm. it doesn't hit quite as well as Spider-Man and Daredevil, who are literally like operating in the same neighborhoods, on the same rooftops, fighting the same villains, for God's sake.
0: Mm-hmm. Kingpin, and- they, they both, they, they're, they're uh, Eskimo brothers with, the, <laughs> with each other <laughs> over the Kingpin.
1: <laughs> 100%. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there is something cool about that, though. It You know, it recalls the whole Superman, Batman, World's Finest but in a way that feels way less forced. Um, Mm Because Superman Batman always feels forced to a certain extent. Okay, let's
0: talk about it. We got to go there. Let's talk about it. Because I I really was going to, I made a little tiny list. uh, Only one I've talked about so far is Spider-Man and Homeboy. But uh, dude, Batman and Superman makes no sense. And I hate, I, I just hate that some of this like 50s, 12 page story with a weird cover where they tell you the whole story of the cover type of thinking has permeated for the last 60 fucking years. Like mm. it, that was a cute thing to do when they were just chums running around and half the time Superman, would be running on the street for some reason. Like, why are you running? You can fly. I'm just running down the street here. <laughs> going to go talk to this hot dog vendor. You know, <laughs> yeah. Me and Jimmy Olsen trying to get our steps in, you know, whatever the fuck they was doing to make it just be so pedestrian and uh Wayne boring as it were uh you know i just i don't understand why this thought process of they could really truly be chums i don't think that they should be enemies because i think that's an that took took hold last 30 years yeah so you know what i'm saying so we got 50s type of thinking and versus 80s type thinking 80s type thinking is well i'm street level you're a god so i gotta i gotta try to kill you with your with your own kryptonite and then 50s is like why wouldn't we be best buddies you push planets i knock out robbers makes total sense (laughs) though but it's like neither one makes any fucking sense really
1: i agree with that i mean i'm obviously a huge superman fan you're a huge batman fan and i don't think either one of us like has a huge grudge against the other, but like, yeah, they're just character. They're two great tastes that do not taste great together. And that's a duo that 100% just comes from sort of corporate profit seeking. Um, It was just, you know, at the time when they met up and started palling around, Superman was the top-selling comic book hero in the world, and Batman was the second top-selling, so why don't we put him in a book together and see if that sells millions of copies? Like, that's all that was.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny that, like, even certain t- – I mean, not, I'm not going to get off on a long tangent, but, like, teams – the mm. the the whole just I remember we did a thing on teams with the, uh, Eric Barnes I do believe yes and we talked about all the different type of teams that there are and what are great team books and it really started to dawn on me that like the Justice League is only together for like marketing and for when a kid goes to the store and he's got five bucks to spend on a comic one of them has all the heroes in it and one of them has one hero in it it just mm. becomes an economic decision at that point and it's like because like. It, the point's been made a billion times. Superman doesn't need anybody in the Justice League, and it's very hard to design a Justice League story where Superman is preoccupied, but not in a boring sucky way where he just flies off panel for a while, like they used to do with Apollo in the in the in the, in the, in the um Authority comics. Just like the Armada is forty seven parsecs that way, just go fuck them up, and we'll fight ninjas in this rooftop right, right here. Yes. You know what I'm yes. saying? Without doing that type of bullshit. It's really hard to design a story where you need all these Justice League dudes and Superman. I'm not saying it's impossible at all. Grant Morrison did it pretty good. Yep. Um, you know, uh, I think Mark Wade did it pretty good. So people do it pretty good. But I'm just saying for a Batman and Superman story, there's this extra layer of extracurricular bullshit. Like, I'm Superman, and I can't like read this code key a billion times and figure out the code. I need to call Batman because he's smarter than me. It's like, eh, not really. You don't, yeah. you don't need Batman for this. And the Batman will be like, oh man, I detective all the way up. And now Amazo is here. Hmm. If only I knew a guy. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I hate that. It's like, it's so you're right. It's like, you got, you got uh you got Superman and my Batman, you got Batman and my Superman, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's like, oh, well, let's th- throw these both away and get the flavor that we want.
1: <laughs> As, <laughs> and I mean, I think that that ultimately is the argument in favor of Spider-Man and Daredevil where it that seems to come less from like a profiteering place and more from a natural story realization of like, Oh wait, why not? Like there's no good reason not to. And I think that that is sort of an integral part of a duo. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to think even in comics, which has a long rich history in the Batman and Superman tradition of throwing together two wildly disparate things I feel like that seldom works. I think a good duo really needs to occupy the same milieu, and that can be a really strange milieu, but it needs to occupy the same milieu. And honestly, that kind of hmm. that gets me thinking about Deadpool and Cable, which I know it does, they don't have as long an in-story history as maybe some of the marketing or internet talk would have you believe, but there was a there was a series And I forget if it was the Deadpool series by Joe Kelly or if it was a Cable series. But there was a series in the early 2000s that really put them together almost as a lark because they were both created by Rob Liefeld. But having a meta character that can break the fourth wall like Deadpool paired up with a character who is so self-serious and with such a loony bonkers only in comics backstory as Cable... Suddenly, it's like, oh, that does make a little bit more sense than you would think on the surface, because they can exist in the same milieu, even though they're going to have ludicrously different reactions and M.O.s within that world. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, and real quick, this is my um, off the top of my head uh, pitch to fix fucking Deadpool 2. (laughs) Um, The stupid kid doesn't exist. None of that bullshit exists. It's just Deadpool's gonna do something and Cable has to come back to prevent it. Mm. And then they become buddies while Cable is still trying to actively prevent him from doing stuff. Like they like Cable comes back with the intent to kill him, figures out that he can't, and then they have to do a bunch of buddy shit to make sure this horrible future doesn't happen. Done i i just think that's i think that's it like i I just thought about it just now because it's like the whole point of that movie being bad is cable and deadpool don't get to hang out Mm -hmm. they're in the movie together but they don't really get to hang out and make a relationship and go from oh this is a fucking goofball i want to laser his face off to oh this guy's this guy's kind of okay i wonder why i still got to kill him too this guy saved my life to damn, this guy might be the key to the universe. That arc would have blown people's fucking minds.
1: Sure. You know, so I, I, I agree know. with that. No, I mean, I, look, I think the my thoughts on that movie are well-documented, but also the, the, the whole problem with that movie is they marketed it as, oh, you're going to see the Deadpool cable duo, and then their interactions in the movie couldn't be any more underwhelming than they were. Yeah. And it's like at least your idea would put them together to have the kind of super serious slash ball busting hijinks that you would want out of a duo like that.
0: Pretty pretty much. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, the ball busting adventures, um, basically, do you like? I think the best duos really complete each other, mm-hmm. and I just have to talk about Power Man and Iron Fist. Yes, sir. Because I just think of of there are so many characters that they force to team up and there are characters that are incomplete without each other that suck when they're not together like hawk and dove right mm-hmm. okay i think there's a reason why hawk and dove haven't exactly set the universe on fire as far as popularity because it just it i, I you know the different origins of the different hawks and doves you can go dive through that if you want to fandom wikipedia handle your business i'm just merely stating that they they kind of suck we're going to do an episode about character design and costumes. Their costumes kind of suck. Yes. They, the, so the costumes kind of suck. They kind of suck their whole. I'm, I'm a Hawk. So I'm warlike, and I'm a dub. It just sucks. Oh, that's bad. Power man and iron fist, a guy who's like a hero for hire and a, and a low level seventies Kung Fu master. And they kind of solve local cases. Like he's got a little international intrigue. Uh, Power Man's got a little bit of a, a sociopolitical commentary. Uh, it's just, mm, that's a stew. That's it's, a real stew.
1: It, no, it really is. And I think on the most basic level, right, it's just saying who would you not want to get in a fight with and picking the <laughs> two most polar opposite versions of those people <laughs> right. and putting them together. Mm-hmm. But then I think the way that their characters are rounded out whether, whether by design or not is just kind of genius. Cause like you alluded to like Luke Cage, socially conscious, poor man from the streets, Danny Rand, absolutely privileged asshole bill, you know, billionaire inheritance, never had to work a day in his life. You put those two guys together immediately. There's opportunity for really juicy interactions and a lot of good comedy. And then just the way that they round out their personalities where it's like, Luke Cage takes no bullshit. Iron Fist does nothing but bullshit. And it's like you just keep putting those contrasts on top of each other. And it just it it almost writes itself, which I think is what you can say about the best duos. Oh, absolutely.
0: And what you said earlier in regards to you complete me, mm. a, a fucking Iron Fist comic by himself just stop it. Just stop. <laughs> stop thinking that like the fetch not's gonna fetch is not gonna happen. That shit's not gonna happen. It just, they keep trying and they keep failing because it sucks. And no matter how many... they if they, they rebrand it and and do whatever they want to to make it more politically uh, not a uh, grenade, whatever they want to do, it still sucks without that counterbalance. Because the whole point of these these kung fu characters is they could beat everybody up. So you put them in a situation where well, now we have to have some precision as to who we beat up. Now we have to have some discretion as to who we beat up and how we beat them up. Sometimes we won't be able to punch them. How can we punch some people to get into a position to do this intellectual thing to the bad guy? So on and so forth. One of my favorite Punisher stories, Punisher and his and his buddies fight their way up to the kingpin, and the kingpin just kicks the shit out of them. And they fucking leave. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you run into something that you can't do beat yeah you know what i mean it was a big lesson punisher spent like 10 issues trying to get up to the level to fight the kingpin and just got housed in like a two like a one page fight just got solely housed which is what would happen to a 60 year old man who fight to a 60 year old man fighting a 55 year old man who's who's 400 pounds of solid muscle who fights ninjas (laughs) you're gonna beat up frank castle it's just gonna happen you're gonna have a bad time (laughs) right and so with the kung fu character it was like there's always you know, Iron Fist could fight 50 guys, but then Power Man could come in and help them. You know what I mean? Or Power Man could get overwhelmed by a bunch of guys like dropping a bunch of heavy tonnage on them, but they can't because they're getting kicked in their necks by his by his buddy. They really made – and I love how sometimes they were made to look really foolish in other books because yeah. they just weren't quite on the level of other heroes. Like they try to um, – they're assigned to protect Matt Murdock. And he gives him the slip to turn into Daredevil. And then as Daredevil, he just basically Spider-Man, like how Spider-Man fights whole teams, Daredevil just fought them in that manner. And they just couldn't grasp them. They couldn't handle them. And it's like, yeah, that's what would happen. But that doesn't mean those guys aren't great for all types of hard traveling heroes-esque adventures all throughout the 80s and stuff. So I just felt like – and also they never really emphasized Danny's money. They always kind of made him either reject his privilege or he came back and the Rand fortune had been – misappropriated or something so he was in the ghetto not as some sort of charity thing like oh i could buy this whole building or just sort of kick with my feet up on this desk until a femme fatale comes in and gives us a case you know what i mean they they kind of didn't worry about that they worried about the fact that danny and luke had to pay the bills and they were going to have to save old old lady mcgillicuddy from these guys who are menacing her store oops they turned out to be bulletproof and have nuclear weapon hands
1: Mm. Looks like (laughs) it looks like it's a job for us, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that sort of shit. I also, you keyed on something there that I think makes a lot of sense, too, in terms of the you complete me. There's a sense with Power Man and Iron Fist that, like, man, if these two really got on the same wavelength, they would just be unstoppable. Mm
0: -hmm. But there's
1: always just a little bit of fuck uppery between Mm -hmm. them that like keeps them from reaching that full potential. So like, they're never going to be the Avengers, but in your mind, you're like, they should be. And I mm-hmm. think that that, that little bit of like, man, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for them to get even better at what they do. I'm waiting for them to hit mm-hmm. the big one. Cause I see it. I see that potential in mm-hmm. the synthesis of these two guys. That's such a real draw, right? It, it's mm-hmm. such a real, like it keeps you hooked and it keeps you wanting to see them together because it's like, I know they're awesome together, even if they can't quite see it, which I think is dope.
0: I mean, and uh, last things last, I know they've probably done a story of this, but like the fact that they never kind of were just like, "Okay, Luke, I'm gonna teach you like six moves." <laughs> right. You'd be able to beat up the thing if you knew these six moves. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Because right. like, what what Bendis ended up doing was just sort of like giving him like I think the uh, the Wrecker's crowbar. And he could in like this weird power jump from like three or four tons to about 40 or 50 tons. And he's like, winning the Avengers and he's this respectable guy with a wife and all this shit, I've railed against that before. I'm not going to rehash that, but just like that just took them all out of the ghetto, all out of hanging out with the people, all out of what would make them have to be a duo. Cause why, why would Luke Cage have to be a duo with Daddy Ram when he's hanging out with Iron Man and Ares and Jesus or whatever right. the fuck yeah. it doesn't make any sense. It just stripped. And, and, and in that, trying to make him so interesting and make him his own man. They stripped away what made him interesting in a certain milieu, in my personal opinion. And it was just like, they just, I don't know. They just let it go. And then they tried to bring back the magic, but it's like, wait a minute. If you hang out with the Avengers, you do all this type of shit. Why are you back in the hood with Danny Rand again? Other than us just doing some stories that way. It's just like, you got to make a real concrete reason. Like Jessica Jones and homegirl's daughter got killed by the beyonder too bad. He he goes yeah. into a fucking spiral and go and ends up being basically broke as hell and rejecting all his homies. And the only one who can get through with it through to him and help him is Iron Fist. And slowly they rebuild their relationship and he comes back to superhero dumb on the level that he's actually comfortable with, where he's actually helping people. Trying to punch gods and fastball special Wolverine up to fuck at the high evolutionary's crotch or whatever the fuck that he's doing in those adventure stories. Yeah. He goes back to the real shit that made him happy. Cause that's the only thing that can make him happy. Cause now, now his fucking chick and his baby are dead cause they suck. I'm sorry. I just
1: that's want them like, wiped Ed, out. Man. Ed is just casually fridging characters over here. That's, <laughs> frigid. that's what we're doing on this podcast. Dude, women, children, anybody can get it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> alfred <laughs> whoever nah. um so yeah so oh speaking of which mm. i think now would be a good time to um broach some of the um bat characters because okay. i think that there's like a hundred duos mm. in there even if you're just talking about batman and robin there's like batman and robin are like the um the fixings on a whopper you could put them in 2000 type of way iterations
1: uh-huh uh-huh yeah i mean I think the point you made earlier about are are Batman and Robin truly partners or is Robin a sidekick to Batman is an interesting point. And it sort of makes you think about stories that play with that dynamic. And like, I don't want to sound like a broken record because I know that we've talked about this before, but it really makes me appreciate, again, the Grant Morrison, Batman and Robin with Dick Grayson, Batman and Damian Wayne, Robin that Mm -hmm. is one of my favorite all-time duos in comics let alone in the batman mythos and Mm -hmm. it's something that we got so precious little of you know and and i don't think it hits quite the same when it's nightwing and robin it's just in those specific circumstances of dick grayson taking over the batman mantle um but it does all the great things that we've talked about so many duos doing you know from Riggs and murtaugh up to power man and iron fist like you get the personality clash You get the way that they approach situations and handle things being different. You get that feeling of like, oh, my God, these guys should be unstoppable together, but they just can't get past their own shit. But I want to see them work it out because it's going to be so great when they do. Like there's so much of that good storytelling meat in Morrison's Batman and Robin.
0: Yeah, I, I think the uh, the main thing I love about it, because I, I really revere it basically almost as much as you do, mm. I think what's interesting is everybody's trying to, it's just a beautiful portion of time where everybody's trying to earn their mantle. Like, Damien is trying to be less of a psycho and more of a Robin, and he's failing at that. And, and um, Nightwing, Dick Grayson, is trying to be Kind of the Batman that he kind of wishes he had on a certain level, but also he can't, he, I don't know. This kid is so much wilder than he was. So he finds himself in this weird crossroads of like, I got to rein this fucker in, but if I rein him in too hard, he's going to slit everybody's
1: throat towards sleep. You know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, kind of. Yes. And, and I, again, I think that tension is so key to great duos because at its heart, like a duo shouldn't just be a protagonist randomly split into two people. I mean, the conflict between a duo should live at the heart of a story. And I think that's where it goes back to me saying, like, all of these are almost like romances, where no matter what external circumstances are thrown at them, the ultimate question is still, will they, won't they? Can they, can they not make it work? And like, I can't think of a duo that really trades on something other than that dynamic that would be worth throwing into this mix that we're talking about.
0: Hmm. Huh. That, that's an interesting thing to say. Oh, cause okay. no, cause I think, I think it is, it gets to the heart of how few partnerships there actually are, you know, uh, where it's like, there's always seems to be some sort of person at the head, and I'm thinking of like, and you talk about them being like romances. That brings me to like, well, are, is Mr. Fantastic and Sue Storm, are they a duo? I know mm-hmm. they're a quad because they got those other two fools with them. Sure, But they are the people who are committed to each other. I guess, you know, Sue is committed to her brother because of familial shit. But, you know, get in front of God and country and all the superheroes and pro- proclaim your love for your wife. And she's this immensely powerful um i you can't really call it telekinesis but let's just go with that Uh, uh telekinesis bubble maker and you're like the smartest person in the world and you can stretch your mind and blow all this different shit and i just think sometimes i think of duos as if they just decided to fuck everybody up would people be in trouble I think Batman and Robin as evil would fuck up a lot of shit. I think Mr. Fantastic and Mrs. Fantastic as evil would fuck up a lot of shit. I think Spider-Man and Daredevil as evil would fuck up a lot of shit. They'd have to send, they'd have to send more powerful characters than them to stop them from doing what
1: they were doing. Yeah. I mean, I see that completely. The other thing though, that comes to mind when you talk about, you know, Mr. Fantastic and the invisible woman, I think the thing that's endemic to most comic book married couples is that they're so the writers or maybe the publishers, I don't know, are so committed to keeping those marriages idealistic that it robs the duo of all the interesting, of all the things that make a duo interesting. So whether that's Superman and Lois Lane, whether that's Reed Richard Sue Storm, whether that's Wally West and his wife or Barry Allen and Iris or whatever, it's like they they so always have to be the perfect couple that the tension that whole oh they're opposites they've got you know they've got friction between them they need to find something in the other person to complete them that gets thrown out the window and then it's just well you do this thing while i do this thing and then we're going to confab together and we're going to share what we've learned and oh yeah then now we've got a way to move forward which is fine but that's all it is is fine you know what i mean
0: yeah yeah i do i think also when you look at like couples uh couples that never really got to be a duo and i wish they really were i really wish daredevil and electra were a real duo oh yeah they're just always at each other's throat so much and when they become a duo it's usually one of them is under the thrall of the hand or some weird something weird is kind of kind of like how you're saying that um Power Man and Iron Fist are loving loving ships in the night that are pa- that pass each other or that that rub holes but don't quite. I don't know why would you want them to crash into each other. This metaphor is fucked up. Anyway, <laughs> the the point is like they're not they never quite meet. There's always some friction or some tension or some space in between their ideologies that that messes it up and makes them not be able to be like as powerful as they could be together. Hmm. I think very much so. That's Daredevil and Elektra um there's always a little bit of schism of whether it's just her just Mercant and fools stabbing people in the neck where he just kind of conks them or if it's just um uh what is evil what's the nature of evil can you can you be a good guy in control of the fucking hand right. you know all this different shit that they've done to them now i guess um uh daredevil's technically the leader of the fist the guys who fight the hand um mm-hmm. Uh, Wait! Wait till you see the deadly fingers—the deadly fingers (laughs) of the new, the new Jason Aaron creation, where they just point at people and they die. Uh, Fucking the the index, they're coming in strong.
1: The, okay. flange. the flange, yeah, the, is the, gonna the be flanges, very yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, and then there's a new villain that's about to take out the hand, the fist, and the fingers. He's called Carpal Tunnel Syndrome. <laughs> we gotta fight this guy with all of our might. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, as far as uh, did you do you have any any ones that you're just like I think this is a, an obscure one, and I maybe I'm the only one who like this because I have one of those. If you don't mm. have one.
1: Well, I mean, I have a few actually outside of comics um, Mm -hmm. that I think maybe are underappreciated, but, you know, are worth a little bit of a discussion. But if you have one that's like in the comic book realm, let's hear it. Okay,
0: I'll do it right now then. Um, Mine is, and this is probably so typical of people um, of what I usually say, but um, Punisher and Microchip. I think there was a time that that was awesome. Because it, it really is one of the things that made sense. Like the Punisher can't just, he's, he's from the 70s. In the new computerized world of 1985, he can't be running around knowing all this highfalutin stuff. So, how is Frank Castle supposed to get along in this new modern world? He gets with this guy who has like a son and has some crimes done to him, and now he's got a real hard on for crime, but he has no way to do anything about it. Uh, that's microchip and then punisher is i got all the skills in the world but i need a little help point myself in the right direction need a little help navigating the modern quote-unquote world of 1985 to 89 Mm. uh and you know so i need my guy and microchip was just there to like uh, you know crack codes do all the all the guy in the chair stuff and i think he might have been really one of the first guys in the chairs that wasn't q yeah and wasn't some fucker like forge outfitting the x-men with stuff the, the guy in the chair that i grew up with as a youth was microchip and it was so scary when like the bad guys would find out that microchip was just in a van a block away while yeah. the shit was going down and be headed over there and you're like oh god microchip's gonna fucking die yeah. and it it was just there was something about and then micro there's a uh, i think it, i think it's an issue nine a ninja i think this is the issue i might be getting confused but a will spartatio drawn punisher issue where a ninja or some fucking body shows up uh, Microchip's son gets killed. Microchip's son helped Microchip and Punisher do crimes or, or stop crimes while doing crimes, and his son gets killed. And um, and Punisher just sort of brings Microchip the body and drops it on him and goes, "Sorry, Micro," and just walks off. Like like how like how <laughs> it's just cool. like he he couldn't because Punisher couldn't feel yeah what it was because he's he's he warned for his his kid. He knows how Microchip feels. And he's put all of his feelings in all this war on crime. So I just, I don't have nothing for you. You know what I mean? It was just, it was really fucked up. And Microchip kind of harbored that for a while. And I think it was dope as fuck when Garth Ennis wrote the Punisher Max line where microchip started helping the feds to catch the Punisher. Yeah. And one of his main things was you left me out to dry. When you, when we, when you went to prison and different shit like that happened, I had to scrounge for myself. I was just as guilty of all these crimes as you, I had to make for myself. And you couldn't even show me any love when my kid died and all this kind of shit. It's just like, fuck you. And like micro turned on him. And the, the, the end when Punisher has to like take out micro for people of my generation, that felt like goddamn Superman being like Lois Lane. I gave you too many chances. You try to <laughs> stab me with your kryptonite claws. You gotta go. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it felt like for for Punisher fans of my generation from the like 80s on up. Reading them as little baby kids where we couldn't understand the violence up to now, when we kind of yearn for it as a catharsis against urban environments. Sure. <laughs> Fucking yeah. there, there's this there, that whole span of time. Re- it really made me feel. I just got to give props to, yeah, Punisher and Micro being uh, that maybe the first real fallout of a partnership I saw. Uh, I saw it begin and end. Yeah. And, and comics don't afford you that. They don't afford, they're always stuck in the stasis of us being perfect partners forever, you know, or occasionally being enemies, but then getting back to being perfect partners in, in this inevitable loop. But Punisher being best friends with Micro to killing him. It was you never see it in comics. You really never see it.
1: Honestly, man, like I think you just made a really strong case for how to make a Punisher movie work. Mm. Is make make the Punisher and Microchip deuteragonists, right? Who go through a similar thing of like crime takes my family and leaves me with nothing, and I need vengeance, and this this other person has the thing that I don't have in microchips case the means and the killer instinct in the punisher's case the ability to navigate the world in a stealthy you know sophisticated way and then break that partnership up for any one of a number of different reasons right mm-hmm. like they just find out we can't actually do this together like that is a great way to both revel in and sort of question the whole concept of the punisher at the same time and leave, leave you on kind of an ambivalent note, because whether it's the Punisher, or whether it's Microchip who lives in the end, somebody is not coming out alive. Mm-hmm. I think, dude, that's the argument for a movie right there.
0: dude. And, and to be fair, I think they tried to do something like that in the Punisher series, but Microchip was like a secret agent type CIA mm-hmm. guy or something, and all this different shit. It's just, no, 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 no. Edward Snowden meets... I don't know any number of assholes who think they're vigilantes that they think they know what to do. Just uh, Edward Snowden, who would link up with a, with the most famous vigilante in the world.
1: You know, you know that's kind
0: of what it was. It wasn't like I'm a CIA shill who's done with the CIA now. It's more like I'm an activist. I'm a revolutionary, and I want sure. to be revolutionary with you because you're a physical force. I'm a mental force. You know,
1: it weirdly makes me think um, Paul Dini wrote a graphic novel called Darkest Night which was actually autobiographical about he was writing on Batman, the animated series. And he got like mugged and beat like almost to death by somebody random on the street. And he wrote this graphic novel as a reflection on like how sort of dark and insular his thinking became and how he was connecting to Batman in like all the wrong ways Mm -hmm. of like wanting to hurt people and wanting to get revenge and all that. Like, that's almost the template I see for microchip and Punisher. Like, Mm -hmm. microchip should be like a Paul Dini type of guy. Like, a true blue nerd, out of shape, like, has all this esoteric knowledge in his head that the real world doesn't really appreciate. And then gets so fucking wronged that he's just like, I just want to go out and fucking kill everybody who deserves it. And then give that guy a reckoning with, like, oh, my God, what am I becoming? And Mm -hmm. I think that's that's a hell of a story, man,
0: dude. And the beautiful part about it is, you can just make up some new characters. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck them! They'll never let me do it anyway. But um, oh, so
1: so, what were some of the duos that you had that were outside of the comic? Okay. So before we return to movies, I did want to make the observation that kids' cartoons actually make great use of duos. Hmm. I think maybe the most iconic one currently being um, Spongebob and Patrick, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like Patrick is kind of dumb enough that he is more of a sidekick to Spongebob. But if you go outside of that, I think of something that was definitive in my childhood, which would be like Ren and Stimpy. And, <laughs> yeah. And even on a less caustic angle, uh, as far as Nick go, Rugrats with Tommy and Chucky yep there's just there's something so (laughs) great when you're telling those little bit more low-stakes stories and especially when you want to get into comedy and I do think this goes back to like the Laurel and Hardy Abbott and Costello of it all where it's like ever since people have been doing pratfalls you've had duos right but when you're doing those stories for kids that you need to always have conflict but it's never about saving the world There's nothing better than having like one person who's always getting into trouble and the other person who's kind of a scaredy cat or one person who's always super rational and one person who's always super emotional, right? Like there's so much mileage in those contrasts. And I Mm -hmm. think that really gets distilled even down to like bugs and Daffy in classic Looney Tunes, (laughs) bugs, bunny, Daffy duck. The, the one, I never take anything seriously and the other one I'm so self-serious I can't stand you. Like that is good shit, man. And I think that it's worth giving it up. Yeah, I
0: I think as far as um the cartoons, it's it's interesting how like they they have so many characters that you it's almost like I watch Survivor. It's my only reality TV proclivity. I just love it. I think it's great. Uh-huh. And in the show, they have these things called alliances. And there'll be like five, six motherfuckers are all voting together. But they're really like two people who are really kind of running in. They have these three foot soldiers. I think of these teams that way. So who are the actual – who is the true alliance duo in the Thundercats, let's say? Mm. Who are the two people that actually stirred the drink and the other ones are on the outside?
1: We know, right? It's Lino and Panthro. Like, it is on. Lino and Panthro. Of course, <laughs> it's Lino and Panthro. It's definitely Lino and Panthro. It sure as hell isn't Wiley Kit and Wiley Cat. I'll tell you. That
0: <laughs> Dude, although one could say that Snarf is in there, man. Oh, Snarf, you know. Snarf might be. I think the, the the true alliance. I think when they if they got down to the to the t- the top two uh, as they used to do in the early seasons of Survivor, and there had to be an odd man out. I think Panther would be like. What the fuck? Why am I, Why am I on the outs? Uh, snarf raised me, said that was a little snarf, you know. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I think Snarf and Liono are the are the power couple. And everybody, everybody, fair enough,
1: man. I, I, you're not wrong on that one. Uh, <laughs> snarf oh. underappreciated as far as those 80s. <laughs> we got to have something in here for the kids. Goes. <laughs>
0: hey, man, he used to stand on his little tail and shit. It's kind of interesting. Uh, he's like a lizard cat ewok
1: (laughs) (laughs) it is kind of weird too that you're a race of humanoid cats and you have a like a non-bipedal still animal but can talk your language type of cat like that's some weird evolutionary bullshit going on there
0: yeah i think maybe he's like i think he's just a thundercat but he's sort of um challenged in a lot of ways oh, so no. so i i just think they're just like hey man just don't worry that he's he's different he's just a cool guy and he's just like a that age-old argument if mickey's a mouse and 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 donald's a duck and pluto's a dog then what's goofy it's like ooh, that's kind of wild <laughs> so that that's that was the Thund- that was the first edition of that thundercats problem we we're talking yeah. about <laughs> fair enough like, um but yeah so I, I also want to give it up to like hop along Cassidy and whoever the fuck and the, the Cisco kid and the other one and shit like that. They have had the Westerns did kind of like butch Cassidy, and Sundance kid that pe- Westerns did kind of e- even as a mythical, like penny farthing story book thing, uh, you know, written by all those, those guys. It's so funny in the wild, wild West. If you had glasses, you were just like, get your ass over there in that shop. And fold the gingham and do some shit. If you got glasses, you're not going to be a gunfighter. You're not going to be a big man. Take your four-eyed ass on over there and sit on that porch while while the men shoot each other. It's like, wow, I want to see some glasses, gunfighters. (laughs) In all the movies, the guys with glasses never get the gunfight. But anyway, in Westerns, they love... The whole duo thing, because it's like the back to back shooting it out mm-hmm. or I'm I'm about to get, you know, hung by the populace. You shoot the you shoot the fucking rope and ride two horses and I jump on one is like the duo thing works really well in Westerns. I think it works really well in crime stories. My girlfriend falls asleep to novels on tape and she listens to fucking um, Spencer for hire books mm-hmm. and Spencer and Hawk. I got to put them up there as a duo. First of all, the motherfucker wrote like 87 books about them. So, <laughs> you got to give it up for the longevity uh-huh. of the partnership. But like Hawk is like, I hate the word street smart cuz it's a, just say smart. Just say smart and we pan over to the character and we see that they're black and they have tattoos on their face or whatever, then you can say street in your head or whatever if you want to. But like goddamn, he's just a smart guy who isn't some milk toast like, you know, um non-character he's got edges he's a he's a he's a black guy anyway hawk was so cool he was always a um he was always a physical threat like knock a fool's out but he was always he always knew how to approach situations in a way that spencer for hire doesn't know i spencer would be wanting to go on guns blazing kind of and hawk would be like now let's think about this here you know and just it was like i'll just say it out like this The only and the best magical Negro I've ever seen is Hawk Hawk (laughs) Hawk was smart and great and seemed to be pretty much equal partner in the stories. He never used his magic to help white people. There wasn't Mm -hmm. ever like, oh, I'm Hawk. Let me go jump on a grenade for you, Spencer Hawk. Like, how about we vacate this way to get the fuck away from the grenade? (laughs) You know what I mean? He, Mm -hmm. He wasn't somebody's loyal servant. He was a guy with his own fucking life. And I think it might have been the first time I had been exposed to it in literature if I had been reading those books in the 80s when they were published. Um, I think that would have been revolutionary at the time because most of the time, you know, if there's a black guy and a white guy in those stories or a white guy in in any sort of minority, it was just like – Hey Wong, go over there and take a bunch of bullets while I get into the safe or something. You know what I mean? It was always <laughs> Yeah. Go over there and get fucked up while I go be a hero and then I'll come back and find your body and go no to the heavens and then I'll go make make love to a blonde to get over it and then I'll shoot the bad guy in the fucking head at the end. Right. You know what I mean? Fuck you and your family. <laughs> and right, fuck you right. and your goals cuz you never really had any cuz the author didn't give a fuck about you. You know, but Hawk wasn't like that.
1: Well, uh, so everything you just said, I think is twisted into even more of a delicious genre subversion in the movie Collateral. Nice. Talked about it before on this show, but I want to bring it up in this context because the Jamie Foxx character and the Tom Cruise character in Collateral are very much written as a classic duo. Even, I would say, in the the, um, vein of something like 48 Hours or Lethal Mm -hmm. Weapon, Yes. But it's turned on its head because Tom Cruise is both the deuteragonist and the antagonist of the movie. And it's shown from the jump. But then everything you were just saying about how, like, you know, the minority character is always played in relation to the white character. Essentially, the premise of Collateral is Tom Cruise drafts Jamie Foxx into that role against Jamie Foxx's will and he's too much of a milquetoast dude to get out of it. And the movie is about him learning to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's dope as shit.
0: Yeah. I mean, when, when he crashes that car, when he's like, you know what? Fuck it then. Yeah. And he just blazes through <laughs> crashes the fuck out of the car. It's like, damn, dude. Like, he... He grew a pair. Was so big, it was, it was the airbag that saved him. His, his nuts grew so big they yes. saved him from the crash. You know, yeah. I, I love that type of shit. I love anything where, yeah, the character. Oh, and that in that respect, greatest movie duos. And we're keeping it Oreo, man. My main man, Reginald Johnson, and fucking um Bruce Willis, man. Yes, they're great buddies in Die Hard. I mean, and it's so what's so beautiful is. Yes, Al Powell or whatever is a classic sidekick, but what makes him a partner is that they know definitively what is going on inside. They know it because um, John McClane is seeing it firsthand and Al believes him. So they are on the same rope of information. They're the ones in the whole place that have the information. Agents Johnson and Johnson and the fucking police captain and the fucking news people. They're all just running around, making up scenarios, doing whatever. But they're the only two that have the the knowledge and the information. And that de facto makes them partners. And everyone's against them. And the classic Western, you you know, back to back, shoot everybody. Everybody's against them. And they come out on top, and of course, they put that part at the end where Powell has to actually save the hero yes. from from you know. It's just, I man, Stephen E. D'Souza and Jeb Stewart wrote the original draft, but Stephen E. D'Souza, Jeb Stewart, and John McTiernan just kicked ass on that story. I everybody talks about Die Hard being so perfect, and it's going to be that thing that our kids and our kids' kids go. Like when I hear uh, – I read a screenplay book and this guy was like, I haven't seen an action movie that good since Gunga Din. And I'm like, (laughs) bro, get the fuck out of here with that shit. You are insane. Uh What the fuck? We're going to sound like that in a few years, but they're not going to get how it wasn't about a CGI monster eating another CGI monster with such verisimilitude in a 4D xbox theater where they throw saliva on you when the monsters fight or whatever the fuck's <laughs> going to take place in the future you know what i'm saying or some chip in your head where you jizz when you take my breath away comes on it isn't that it's us That's with the future the
1: t- liberals want no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just us and this time with the stuff that we're available and looking up at that screen and seeing just all these events play out i mean the screenplay is still tighter than 99 percent of screenplays every oh, yeah. year Every single year, that screenplay, if it was just we just wiped everybody's minds and put that fucking thing back on the market, but maybe not the screenplay as it was, but what they ended up doing. Like if we just shot that movie independent (laughs) and we're just like, hey, look at this movie we got. You could sell it every year up to now, I think.
1: But there's so there's something speaking specifically to um, McLean and Powell, like there's something so primal to the difference between them inside and outside like there you know what i mean it's so mm-hmm. simple that like yes there is that unbridgeable divide in the classic romance setup of like mm. they should be together but they can't why because one <laughs> is trapped inside and <laughs> one is trapped outside and like that sounds dumb but it's brilliant in its simplicity and yes. i like again that's something that i think makes a great duo is like you have to bring it down to just very primal things that keep them from being the synthesized one person what are those divides and like when you can when you can get that right you get a great duo and actually hold that thought I just want to say real quick as we're talking about Reginald Bell Johnson people might hate it looking back but fucking Urkel and Reginald Vell Johnson in Family Matters, that's another example of that comedic duo I was talking about where it's oil and water, but it just works. I mean, mm-hmm. that became the heart of that show.
0: I, You know, you did that, Bill. You did it.
1: <laughs> I sure did. I sure did.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I, I totally agree, and I would, I would entreat anybody with a modern perspective to go back and look at the episode where Urkel plays a thug from the streets he plays a cousin. He, a cousin of Urkel's is just a hardcore gangster. And uh, Al Powell has a classic uh, pull your pants up type of bullshit conversation with him. And man, it might be the funniest thing ever committed to celluloid or tape or whatever they use. But I'm talking about Urkel with his like, lip jutted out. Like, yeah, you don't know me. I'm from the streets. Uh, it's just the funniest goddamn Julia White playing another character as a, It's so funny. I can't. I feel it in my bones. I'm vibrating thinking about the scene. Just go look that up. I think there's a bunch of clips of it on Twitter. But it's an episode where, I guess, Urkel's streetwise cousin comes to town and starts, you know, disobeying curfew and taking too many cookies or whatever the fuck was bad on T.J.F. <laughs> he listened to one N.W.A. song with the clean version from Kmart. Hey, don't listen to that stuff.
1: <laughs> they said, F the police. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Oh Jesus Christ! Oh, shit. Well, okay. I'm not trying to sing the praises of Family Matters. I'm just <laughs> saying, Reg—I I was pre-associating that Reginald Bell Johnson was also part of another iconic duo. No, and let it is, not be
0: said—he's a team player. I, you, 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 you noticed that right off the bat. Um, okay, I think uh, Barry and his handler and Barry oh, are a classic duo. <laughs> Yeah, because damn that motherfucker! I haven't watched the entirety of this last season, so no spoilers, please. But like, okay. God dang it, that motherfucker just keeps kept worming, or maybe he's dead now. I don't know. Kept worming his way into Barry's heart over and over and over again, and it was just like there's something you know that whole oh oh oh. Also, speaking of which, um, the dudes from Brokeback Mountain. No, um. <laughs> I- <laughs> Like, but basically i am mentioning the fact that like he couldn't quit that guy. Barry right. couldn't quit that guy for the longest time. And even when he tried to quit, then homeboy became a woman scorned. So mm-hmm. i'm just uh, you know in in the classic parlance. Um you know what i mean? That that sort of like that was a microchip Frank uh castle relationship sort of. Someone kind of trading on somebody whose only skill and only ability is Marshall, and they have no direction. Like damn, damn Maybe I should just go hang out outside a sniper school and wait for the washouts to come out. Be like, "Hey, bud, got fifty seven dollars. Couple jobs for you."
1: (laughs) Hey, man! Like toxic relationships make for very compelling duos in fiction. That's just the reality.
0: I mean, how about making your ward jump on rooftops with you at night while you get shot at? Like, okay, the kid didn't ask for this, and uh, and that's that's why. And all the best Batman and Robin stories, they make him ask for it. You notice that mm-hmm. it's like because if you just said, "Hey, chum," or "Hey, buddy," you came down to the you came down to the basement one time, saw me putting on my gray draws, and you're not gonna let it go, so you're gonna be my crime fighter. That's one thing, but when it's like he he's like trying to find out a way, he knows that he's with Batman and Batman can help him defeat the person who killed his parents. That hits so much different than oh, you discovered my secret. You want to see a crossbow? You want (laughs) to see some fucking genuine Catwoman panties? Come over here. You know, (laughs) it's it's better than that for obvious reasons. But it's like it's for for someone uh, that age to consent to a war on crime. Mm-hmm. It's kind of necessary for our modern minds. We can't just respect somebody just being like, "Hey, go do this." I think that's why I didn't enjoy Hit Girl that much. I liked her as a character. I thought she was dope, but if somebody is your actual dad and they've been shooting you and training you since you're a little kid, that to me is more like Kane and Batgirl from DC. Uh, mm-hmm. the guy who raised Batgirl shooting her as a kid, uh, beating her up, not teaching her language so she could learn how to fight better, so she could just know body language. Um that, that sort of shit, I don't know, man. That It edges into that territory for me. But Batman sure. and Robin just escapes it because of the plot armor they've put around. Like, okay, no, 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 no. Dick Grayson was a willful 13-year-old who could already flip and stuff, so he was already low-key dodging bullets. So don't worry about it. He just needed an extra, you know, that eight-week Bruce Wayne training program that has made everybody, some, from spoiler to Jason
1: Todd to whoever you want to say, world See, beaters. Yeah, oh! Look, vomit! Look, I'm... <laughs> I am very much of the opinion that the canon Batman and Robin story needs to be that like Bruce Wayne took in Dick Grayson when he was like nine or 10 and Dick Grayson wasn't fighting crime until he was about like 14, 15 and through a good chunk of those intervening four to five to six years, like Bruce Wayne was actively keeping him at a distance and trying to hide being Batman from him. Because I think <laughs> the minute it turns into, Hmm. Hmm now i've got this young ward what can i do with him that's like (laughs) that's some fucked up shit
0: yeah the whole little soldier thing i was talking to i to uh my buddy grant pardee uh on the pop culture league and he was saying that uh i was saying something like basically batman's like coney you remember coney that dude with all those child soldiers 2012
1: yeah yes you remember that shit oh my god
0: yeah (laughs) fucking batman batman is coney you know what i mean yeah. it's just like that's what's weird about so-called partnerships and that's why i think when you look at uh, even stuff that like new. St- i think some of the newfangled partnerships that i would love to see explored over the course of time are miles and spider spider gwen and another mm. two three four movies i just believe that there's something interesting about that maybe this is a uh, if you think of a headliner uh drop it after this but um I think what's interesting about it is as they say in the newest trailer Spider-Man and uh, Spider-Man falls for Gwen in almost every reality and it never works out. Mm. I don't think they've seen this iteration of it though. And I think what's interesting about it is it doesn't even have to, I don't want to be that guy who's like, uh, there was this song called music, the soul child in the nineties or or early two thousands. And he sang this song. He's like, uh, I don't want to pressure you something, something you ain't even really gotta be my girlfriend. I just want to know some bullshit and maybe sometime we can hang out, you know, just chill. It's like, I don't know a more simp anthem than that <laughs> in my whole fucking life. Yeah, I don't, I don't know nothing more pusillanimous than that. Like, Hey, I want to fuck you. Don't. Okay. I'm gone. Like, I I don't understand that, but I will say there are relationships that start out sort of romantical. And then you go, Oh, there's actually no real chemistry there. I kind of thought I was supposed to like you like that, mm-hmm. but now I do see you as a pretty cool buddy. So fuck it. Let's go be crime fighters and let's go do whatever. I think if that's the way it goes, that's one thing. If it's them defying, the nature of reality or something in being together and then not dying or not having anything bad happen to them. That could be cool. It's like almost any way they take that duo from them being the Batman and Robin two spider people who are like younger and more faster and agile and have these different powers and they're added to the spider mythos. If that's how they choose to play it. If they, if they choose to be a power couple and have kids, which they've done in multiple futures, whatever the fuck they choose to do with that is dope to me. If if they make her be Venom. If at the end of this, she gets Venom shit on her and becomes his Venom later. Any iteration of Miles and Spider-Gwen is the shit. So I'm just putting them up here for my early great duo.
1: Well, and you know who that has shades of, actually, is Invincible and Adam Eve. Yeah, that's another good one, bro. Well, and, and the reason I say that is because I think Robert Kirkman, who wrote Invincible... I think did this on purpose, right? He took the classic, you know, teenage superhero love story and turned it into something more than just, I want to be with you, but my, but my powers get in the way. And he did that by making them both completely competent superheroes who just struggle to figure out like what they want in life and if the other person can be a part of that. So it becomes this very real conversation and not just like your classic Smallville. I can't tell you my secret because it'll ruin your life. <laughs> and, I, and and that ends up becoming, I mean, honestly, Invincible and Adam Eve might be one of my favorite comic book duos because the thing they never lose is the inherent conflict between them. And some of that is plot induced and some of it is character induced. But right up to the end, that book does an amazing job of acknowledging, like, these are two real whole people. And even if and when they make a commitment to each other, life is not going to just let them be in love all the time with no worries. And Mm. I think that that's the sort of thing that you could see out of Spider-Gwen and Miles, where... Number one, there isn't the bullshit. I have to protect you. I can protect myself, blah, blah, blah. Like they're both spider people. And that's, that's it. Mm -hmm. I think that then leaves room to have all the other conversations that any two people who maybe or maybe not are in love are going to have and are going to, they're going to confront some of those things. What do I want? What's my timeline? What do I, you know, What am I struggling with now that I need to get over? What do I need to put behind me? Like all that shit that either, you know, works or doesn't in a romantic relationship can actually be part of this superhero relationship, which is, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't feel as revolutionary as it does. But like superhero romance has for so long been stuck in either it's the damsel in distress that you have to save Mm-hmm. Or it's the bad girl that you're going to will you, won't you, with Batman Catwoman style. Like, mm-hmm. to find a middle ground is so refreshing. And, yeah, they've 100% set that up for Miles and Gwen.
0: Yeah. I just I want to see that, Uh, you know, ah, oh, hey, Gwen. I'm just swinging in to say, oh, my God. Like, oh, man, I just saved this guy. He was looking so hot. <laughs> I'm sorry, Miles. It doesn't mean anything. And <laughs> it's like, fuck. I'm uh-huh. so mad. It's just this just the world of like the spider the spider people and it, dude again. I as we dismount here, I just want to talk about the multiple partnerships of certain people from and we talked about Spider-Man. Spider-Man has been sort of a partner with Mary Jane. Spider-Man's been a partner with uh Gwen, Spider-Man's been a partner with Black Cat. Mm-hmm. Um, which I just I wish that had ever gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. That just seemed like something that could be so cool if they would allow it to go anywhere. Um and when we look at like the spider, the whole everybody as a spider person, it's almost like Wolverine has his own subset. Like Spider Man has his world of people that he hangs out with, most of them girls uh, that are all basically his age. And then Wolverine has this whole subset of world <laughs> where he, he's like a father figure to to everybody from and uh, certain continuities, Rogue, Shadow Cat jubilee uh in certain aspects it seems like he uh it was sort of armor's uh Mm -hmm. dad for a little Mm -hmm. while you know it just seems like he keeps he's like uh he's like uh mcconaughey and Daisy confused like hey the girls keep getting younger and i say the same (laughs) age (laughs) or whatever or no they said anyway you don't understand the fuck i'm saying he's just this dude and again it's fatherly don't be weird but it's it's he's he's got this like he's almost stuck in a fatherly vibe since he's like so old and so experienced. And there's always a new person that could benefit from his guidance. But do you think that's an organic thing or do you think they like the aesthetics of it on a corporate level?
1: See, I think it was organic when Claremont did it with shadow cat with kitty pride. And I think it's been a little bit of a stale, you know, editorial mandate ever since.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that- so too.
1: That relationship worked so well for so long. You know, Wolverine is the gruff, hard to love, but soft underbelly. Kitty Pride is the I'm so outgoing and charming and disarming that I can find the soft underbelly even in this guy. And like you put those two together and you're seeing sides of both that you wouldn't otherwise. Like all that is so good. That when they decided to graduate Kitty Pride and start giving her more, you know, of her own life outside of the X-Men, it became like, oh, this is now just a slot we need to fill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All the way down, like even when, and I think it was either Morrison or it might have been Joss Whedon after Morrison, but even when they introduced armor and you could feel that relationship developing, I was a little bit like, oh, they're doing this again, like Jubilee is yeah. out, so now we got to do this again. That's that's sort of my feeling about that whole that duo. But to me Wolverine and Kitty Pride is like that's an all-timer. I love that.
0: I and I think what was really dope about it, honestly, I know that the 80s was known for their white person ninjification. okay? I know that that was a big thing in the 80s. I bought one of them in Daredevil. I've sold most of the other ones. <laughs> you know, I still buy Daredevil. I've sold most of the other ones. Wolverine is sort of, I like the fact that he's got a little sem, uh, samurai Bushido code shit, and he's not a ninja. I right. think that's what's interesting about his, for lack of a better word, Asian fetish in regards to uh, the, the cultures in Madripoor, Japan, uh, certain sections of China that he's been through to do all his machinations for years i just think that there's something interesting about how how uh those cultures affected him you know uh mm-hmm. to give him a little bit of balance and mental tools to like to um subdue the beast within like the Bushido code is exactly the sort of thing that somebody like Wolverine should adopt. You know what I mean? That that and Zen and the Art of Motorcycle repay, Maintenance or whatever the fuck. Just Ooh. read something to keep your emotions in check because I don't I don't need steel up my ass just because I fuck with the levels of your radio. You know what I mean? I, I don't need that. So, or you had a flashback to when uh, fucking Sabretooth killed your girlfriend on your birthday or some shit. Mm-hmm. Like I don't need to get a shiv, three shivs of unbreakable un- metal because you can't process your feelings. So I love all that, but I think you are right that they just sort of grafted this, um, this corporate mentorship thing onto them. And then they, I even, I, and we we're talking to it uh, when we did our X-Men reboot with Billy, Yeah, the whole like Wolverine's going to be like the fucking leader of the X-Men school or something. I just think the only time that that makes sense is when there is, there are hints that that character wants some sort of leadership or 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 doesn't think that they can to such a degree that they should because that's Mm -hmm. a great leader somebody who doesn't want it that's a great he's never shown anything close to that in my personal opinion
1: yeah yeah i I don't know i think i'm on record with this but like i've always liked wolverine within the context of the x-men being more of a supporting character I think that's where he's most effective. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm not even saying that he needs to be someone who kind of comes and goes as he pleases. And you can't count on him because he's got his own shit happening. I like him being loyal to the X-Men and like not, you know, but I I think that loyalty needs to be expressed as like, he's not going to let any bad shit happen to these people because he legitimately cares about them. But it's not just anybody that he lets in emotionally. So it's like he's there to get drunk and stab people, you know, all the time. But it's very, very rare that you get more of that out of him just because he is that guy. And he does have that dark past and he does have to do, you know, his Zen thing just to live a day to day life, which is why I've always appreciated, you know, when the emotional connections are sort of few and far between. And I think the more sort of mentees you give him, the more people that he's opening himself up to, the more it kind of dilutes that character. So when it's mm. like, you know, when it's like, I'm Wolverine, I get drunk and I stab people, but I also have this weird soft spot for Kitty pride that even I try not to acknowledge, but there might be a little something going on between me and Storm but I'm in love with Gene Gray, even though I don't admit it to anybody except her fucking husband because I like to piss him off. You know, having a handful of butts is great. But when it becomes mm. like, oh, I've got an you know, I've got an emotional exception for everybody in the X-Men, I don't know. i d- I don't like that version of Wolverine.
0: Yeah, well, uh, well, and how far down does it go? It's like, oh, and I love when me and when me and um when me and the fuzzy elf we we grab a few pints and then we start uh you know teleporting through dimensions. I love that sulfur in my beard. I just fucking that sulfur smell of it. I don't know. And then and then when when Colossus puts his hand on my ass to throw me at the juggernaut, I just.
1: <laughs> like, that just there's a special personally. connection with everybody <laughs> like, oh and when
0: dazzler uses her laser finger to light my cigar whoop, buddy yeah. you know it's just like oh god how many yeah how, you, you can't be close to everybody uh Not speaking, Wolverine. <laughs> yeah okay speaking of which as a last dismount i just came up with this game it is called team duo survivor And we're going to look at groups and we're going to distill them down to the two, the duo that makes the fucking thing work. We did it with uh, Thundercats.
1: Yeah. We did it with Thundercats. I I like that. And I want to just, I'll I'll just riff on that for a second. I do think you find in any um, ensemble, you know, be it in comics and television and movies, whatever, a duo will always rise to the top Mm -hmm. as exemplified, I would say, by Independence Day where that movie is chock full of characters constantly interacting in all kinds of ways but really it's will smith and jeff goldblum yes absolutely the movie absolutely
0: so in jurassic park it is the t-rex and the raptor i think we're getting the (laughs) hang of
1: this
0: (laughs) you get it you get it yeah I mean, in the end, it is, though. I mean, because you can't say the the straw that serves a drink is one of these fuckers that ain't been in half the movies. The Raptor uh, and the T-Rex have been in all those movies and were necessary in all of those movies, it seems true. like. That's you true. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think those are the two. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't really count human characters in there. All right, what's one that you have that, that you want to try to distill down? Even if you don't have the answer yet, we'll, do, I mean, we'll, we'll get it down.
1: Let's do let's do the Teen Titans okay oh Oh, shit
0: oh it's a tough one this is tough uh just off the top of my head though i say dick and Corey, and they can all the rest of them could go screw i don't care like i I think they they're emblematic of the whole that or if you want to say it's dick and Corey, or it's cyborg and somebody or maybe somebody would say it was Raven and somebody says she's in mm. all the fucking stories. You know what I mean? Is either a protagonist, a deuteragonist, a fucking, you know, uh, uh,
1: an uh, antagonist. Well, she, I mean, the thing about Raven is like, she carries a built in story engine. Cause it's like, Oh, my dad is a demon. That's going to destroy the earth. So mm-hmm. it's like, that's just always going to be there. That said, I know that they did a will they won't they with her and Beast Boy for a long time, but then mm-hmm. also like Beast Boy is such a nothing character. Oh boy. You know? I mean when when you're dude,
0: Beast Boy is the only DC character I truly believe would get the shit me too'd out of him in real life. <laughs> like he would get me too'd so hard, and I'm not I'm not <laughs> <laughs> just, just, oh my, it ain't easy being green, Garth. Whatever the fuck, kicked out of Teen Titans for groping asses as an orangutan. <laughs> Somehow he thought it was okay if he was a lower life form. You
1: know? Yeah, that was definitely Rap- a, a product of the times. Let's say.
0: <laughs> yeah, just wrapping around chicks' waist as a snake. Ooh, what's going on? Fucking creep. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. For me, it's Dick and Corey, just because they, they just. I think on a, in a survivor type of situation, they're the people who would vote everybody else out in the end to preserve their little shit. Yeah. Uh, or like I said, the only thing I, I think I could, could compete with that is like Cyborg being like, I can manipulate the votes <laughs> some kind of way <laughs> with you my know, powers because he is a stalwart of the of the crew. I think he's the third stalwart of the crew, even more so than Donna Troy. Well, I was just going
1: to – yeah, see, I was just going to bring up Donna Troy, who I think gets forgotten a lot because she's not really a part of all the modern incarnations of the team. She's up there, yeah. Now, she would be in the
0: final four. The final four would be, uh, I think, Corey and Dick, and I think uh, her or Raven and uh, Cyborg. And yeah. maybe it'd be her and Raven and Cyborg would be like, "What the fuck? Voted out of the last council, Cyborg. I, I, he's a I, member of our jury sitting over there with his eye all red."
1: Yeah. That was one hundred percent what would happen. By the way, is he thought he's in an alliance and somebody right. betrays him, and he's like, "What yeah. the fuck? Oh yeah. man, I got seventy four senses. You would have think I would have saw this blindside coming." <laughs> Completely.
0: <laughs> oh, oh shit! Oh, I, I got one. Okay. Um. Okay, let's do Avengers. Let's do the Avengers as as either represented in the movies or the um or the comics. Uh, uh, carte Blanche. I think in the comics, I think it would definitely go down to Captain America and some fucking body. In the movies, I think there's a plethora of people you could actually choose from.
1: See, it's uh, interesting because if you're playing Survivor. I, I almost think that the movie Captain America wouldn't make it till the end
0: yeah you're right you're right they'd, vo- they'd vote him he's like Ozzy <laughs> they'd, yeah. they'd, they'd vote him out he's a challenge beast we gotta get
1: him to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know any of these references because I've literally <laughs> but, never watched one episode okay, of
0: Survivor. On, on, on Survivor they do physical challenges and a lot of times people excel in the physical challenges when they're it's sort of a team sport in the beginning but as it gets to be a more individual game towards the end and there's individual immunity they'll vote out the stronger players and just mm. be a bunch of pussy sitting in the sand doing these challenges poorly but they got all the strong people out you know what i mean so i think in a lot of in a lot of instances super, uh, superman uh freudian slip captain america would be one of the first to get voted out plus he would probably play too honorably
1: that's you know what that's i mean thought. yeah 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 yeah, see, but it's interesting, though, because I do think in the movies, Captain America and Iron Man are 100 percent the duo that makes the team work. Oh, that's that's just a fact of life. That's yeah. a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I think the, damn. Honestly, honestly, I think the best thing of, I think the best thing the MCU did, especially going into Infinity War and Endgame was to make Civil War and to really codify that. Like, look, this entire thing just revolves around these two guys Um, because a little bit the two Avengers movies before that you can argue they suffer from trying to be too even-handed with the amount of like story and gravitas they're giving to all the team members when really it was Iron Man and Captain America's story all along like the entire Mm -hmm. whatever you call the infinity saga the entirety of it is really about those two characters Mm -hmm. and it's like it wasn't until Marvel kind of Cop to that that everything just really clicked.
0: hmm Oh, also, uh Surviv- Survivor, Guardians of the Galaxy, it's 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 oh. still it's still Groot and Rocket to me. I think yeah. in the at the end at the final tribal council, it's Groot and Groot's trying to tell everybody why he should win the game. I am Groot. I am Groot. I am Groot.
1: I am Groot. I am Groot. I am Groot. They're all applauding. Woo! <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. this
0: fucking guy's great after 39 days on survivor <laughs> we understand we understand him because we can't uh-huh. live that long with them but yeah i you know uh i think just groot and rocket go together a raccoon in a tree oh yeah you can't beat it it's yeah. symbiotic slash like they're both autonomous characters but you know groot is sort of a support guy i rocket's so great i god damn. rocket and groot are the other people who, who get out of Guardians of the Galaxy Survivor. Definitely. Easy. Easy. Oh, okay. How about this one? How about this mm-hmm. one? Batman Survivor. Batman oh, Universe Survivor. Bat-family. The Bat Family Survivor. Who gets out? I I have I have a thought, but I'm I I'm really open to input because I think there's so many things to think about. Like Batman is the originator of the shit, but a lot of the people who originated Survivor, some of their techniques are old now and the yeah. young kids have been watching those for years and they kind of could get around them. There's yep. that angle of it uh, and also we get down to the people who still we're still trying to get down to the people who stir the drink as maybe a capper let's let's think on this. I want to do X-Men real quick because I think X-Men is a big one too yeah because you could say it's Scott and Jean. you could say the only people who might not vote each other off is Scott and Jean but obviously Jean dies Scott cheats on Jean. there's all these different things that happen to put a fissure in their alliance their two-person alliance. There's See, so many characters, you know.
1: <laughs> you, yeah, I mean, you know who I think. Mm. See, it's fucking. Yeah, no, that's weird. That's <laughs> weird because I was gonna, I was gonna say, I would. I don't know why, but it kind of comes. It, it weirdly comes to me that like Wolverine and Emma Frost would have some sort of devious, like behind the scenes oh, alliance shit. going on. You know what I mean? But but then. Wolverine would 100% kick Emma Frost off a cliff if it meant keeping Jean Grey. And like yes. that's the thing that you couldn't... So maybe it would come down to Wolverine and Jean Grey at the end.
0: Oh, man. Wolverine and Jean Grey. Wolverine, Jean Grey, and let's say fucking Colossus because they just dragged him along as a goat. That's mm-hmm. a player that has no chance of winning the game that you keep bringing along to the end so you can sit next to them at the final tribal council and be like, this, this idiot... Didn't do anything the whole game, and I was blindsided fools. I played five immunity idols, or you know, you know all this kind of shit. You could yeah. defeat them because your resume is bigger. Colossus yeah. would be a goat. They would they would have voted out Storm in the second round, and I'd have been really mad about that because I would love for. Part of me thinks it would be. I hate the Wolverine um Storm relationship. I really do. Okay. I don't think it's real. I think it's this bullshit of like Wolverine gets to kiss everybody and be down with everybody, like all the That's this true. hot chick who has fucked the hottest dude in the world in Black Panther, and comes from the I mean go, and has been living in like few, the future for ten years, and then she gets out of that relationship, and comes back to the X mansion and lives in the future again. I just I don't see her going for Wolverine. I think and and I just don't get it. I don't get it. I think it's dumb. I think it's frankly wish fulfillment on the, on the, Mm -hmm. on behalf of a lot of shitty writers, honestly, tell you the truth. Um, so I think that sucks. However, if we're talking about the two most capable people on the entire X-Men, when it really comes down to like slicing and dicing powers, manipulation, this, that, or the other, it might be, Storm and Wolverine, or Storm and somebody. Storm didn't get to have no powers and just navigated being an X Men for years. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like she, she can fight from on the bottom, which is what you have to do in Survivor. You don't have the numbers in on you. You get, you have to convince somebody. And her speeches, whether she talks like the X Men cartoon, "You must vote with us, <laughs> we won't win the game." You know, whether she talks like that or like how she talks in the comic books, where she's just like this goddess who just calmly can lead lead you and tell you what you need to do and doesn't make it seem like it's not your choice but it Mm -hmm. isn't you Mm -hmm. know what i mean like there's something about her calm super fresh demeanor that i think i personally think storm would be one of the last two i think it might fuck around to be storm and emma frost at the end as far as people who can manipulate and are tough as fuck and don't necessarily need their powers but when their powers come into it I, oh, it might be something like that, dude.
1: Could it? Could it in in one reality be Storm and Jean Grey? Just because, like everybody loves Jean Grey, almost oh yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. so like Ooh, Storm- you know what?
0: That's it. The final four is Storm, Jean Grey, Emma Frost, and Wolverine. And I think they vote <laughs> yeah. somebody out. I yeah. think they get rid of Frost and, and Wolverine at the last. I was just going to say, I
1: three. think I think in that final four, Wolverine's the first one getting kicked out. Yeah, definitely. You know? Definitely and and then All Girls Alliance, they pulled an All Girls Alliance. There it is. And then everybody, everybody knows that Emma Frost is conniving and you can't trust her. So she's mm-hmm. got to go once it's down yep. to the alliance. And so yep. then we've got Storm versus Jean Grey. And it's wow. the Wayfish, like, I couldn't do anything wrong versus the exactly as you just described her, like I'm running this shit. You right. Know what I mean? yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. In, in the end, I think they go, oh, Storm played a better game, Gene. It seemed like you were kind of wishy washy and I feel like you used your powers to get Scott voted off. You know, and that's when
1: that's when she collapsed down with a hand on her forehead. Scott, Scott. <laughs> ah, she
0: falls out. <laughs> ah, that's funny.
1: Okay, so uh our our
0: subconscious. Has been working on the Batman since we just did a good job on X Men. Mm. Batman Survivor. Who okay. who are the who who? What's the final four
1: you think? I mean, there's no way Nightwing doesn't make it, right? Right, absolutely, absolutely. I, you know what? I'm going to give a little bit of an undercard um advantage to Tim Drake. I feel. Like oh yeah, Tim, Tim Drake could play the game. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, Tim Drake. You know, part of me goes, you know, my favorite character in the world is Batgirl. I, I do not think she is conniving, but I do think that she would do good in all the challenges. For sure. And then that I think she might be smart enough to make it to the merge. And once you make it to the merge, it's individual immunities. And I think she could win. I think her Batman and Damien are winning a lot of indipi- or, or rather her Nightwing. And maybe Batman would win individual immunities. I think Damian might be too weak for some
1: of them, like yeah, take lifting a eighty pound bag over, doing all this bullshit. I also think, I mean, Damian's the one that just nobody trusts from the beginning, right?
0: Like, yeah, see, I think that's the thing. He's gonna fucking get voted out before the merge because he's like already trying to get Batman voted out. Like first, the first time his team loses, like I fuck, we need to get Batman the fuck out of here. It's <laughs> what I'm saying, guys. And everybody's like, that's a big move, Damian. I don't think we can. I don't think we can get enough votes to do that.
1: Yeah that's, and he, yeah, that's yeah, that's 100% the thing that happens there. I mean, a part of me wants to say Barbara Gordon, I think, might be the best. Obviously, the, um, the non-paralyzed version <laughs> is going to be the best combination of physical challenges and being able to sort of play the alliance game.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think even if she's bad at the physical challenges in regards to like she's not as fast as Dick, Um, She's not as strong as Batman. She's not as Kung Fu as as, uh, Cassandra. Mm -hmm. I think her social game is by far the strongest, even stronger than Dick's. Yeah. I think her social game would be great because she has dossiers on everybody, and she's been studying the game. Like there, sometimes Survivor will have these people who like they'll go, "Oh, I built a three D model of this puzzle in my house, and I've been working on it for a year." So of course, I did it in record times. Jeff Probst, Jeff Probst. <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck kind of geek are you, man? Yeah. This almost violates the rules of the shit to be that geeky about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but people are, and I think she's that. I think I think I yeah, I think I think fucking Oracle could win Survivor It'd be like, hey, I'm I'm useless in the challenges, but I know everything. <laughs> I know true. who's voting for who, I know who's I because there's some people on Survivor that there's a chick named Sandra, she's won Survivor twice. I've never seen her run more than one mile an hour or lift anything that was heavier than a bag of rice. She is the worst physical competitor you've ever seen in your life, and she's just smart. She's like, mm-hmm. yeah, well, you know, I'm obviously not no threat, so you could take me to the end, but who else are we voted now, Holmes? Hmm? Okay, I think that's pretty good. And then she'll go to the other alliance. These motherfuckers want to vote on him. I'll tell you what. We need to do this. And then, boom, she's got him blindsided. And then the next week, she does it to the other group and the other group. Just a genius. I think – I think. I hate Barbara Gordon, but sure. I'm acknowledging the skill set. Sure. I hate Barbara Gordon. I'm acknowledging the skill set. I think she's in the top four. I think Damien's voted out. I think Dick Grayson is in the, in the top four. I think Batman and Cassandra Cain are in the top four because I think Cassandra Kane they take as like, she's too dumb to play the social game,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: I could take her to the end, and people aren't just going to respect the fact that she kicked a basketball off the top of a hoop and did this shit for the physical challenges. They're going to say, what was her social game? Well, she's being dragged along by me, Dick Grayson, or me, Barbara Gordon, or something. I think she could make it. I think Dick Grayson could make it. Batgirl could make it. And I think Batman would make it. Yeah. And I think... Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson would end up voting out Cassandra first and voting out Batman second and they would yep. be the top 2 at the
1: end. Let me let me throw a wrinkle in that. I think Batman might not make it to the top 4 because his one real weakness if Catwoman is in this competition. Oh, she's yes. she's stringing him along thinking oh that god. he's going on her team and then she just knives him in the back sometime before the top 4.
0: Oh my god. I'll do. Okay. I think, the title, I think the final four. I don't know, man. Does she get voted out shortly after that or does she form an alliance with the two Batgirls and See, be like, yo, I'm going to form a Batgirl alliance. Nobody's going to fucking be able to fuck with us. If they vote me out, they're going to come for you next. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we need to stay together. I think it's three girls and Dick Grayson at the end. Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> nice. <laughs>
0: Wow, that is fucking great. So, okay, who who's the winner of Survivor? Who
1: Survivor, Cagiyan, or whatever, Survivor,
0: Gotham City.
1: I mean, I think, like, a part of me wants to say that it'll come down to Batgirl and Catwoman, uh, uh, Barbara Gordon and Catwoman.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: I think so. I think that, yeah, I think the girls get rid of Dick, like, and
0: fucking Barbara has to show the girls that she's down. And she has to slice her baby, and she's like, "You know, sorry, I got a your pack." And he gets his his torch snuffed. He walks lonely down the down the path, and they all look at his butt and go,
1: Mm-mm. "Yes,
0: yeah, uh, that, that's, that's definitely that's how it,
1: how it goes down."
0: Yeah. Okay. So okay. Mm, fuck, I think Barbara Gordon might win Survivor. I think in the end, she you know if, if there's a if there's a three way tribunal and it's yeah. Catwoman. And Barbara Gordon and Batgirl sitting at the sitting at the final tribal and they have to articulate what they did throughout the game. Batgirl's like, Well, I won a lot and I punched a lot and I'm I fight on the best. Thank you. And then fucking Catwoman goes, Hey man, I lied, cheated, stole, I did this. And Barbara Gordon just gives like I'm talking about Denzel, Washington and Philadelphia. <laughs> Yes. type of closing argument the atticus finch type shit yes and just destroys the fuck out of them yes and wins survivor barbara gordon wins batman survivor
1: oh wow. see you know what you know what this makes me think is like we need more barbara gordon and catwoman stories and we mm-hmm. need more what was a gene gray and storm stories like yeah these feel like duos that could have some mileage and we don't really see them played as duos in a lot of the books.
0: Yeah, no, that's fucking great, dude. I mean, oh, and I know we're going to do an addendum to this on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the greatest pod. Wow. Um, I also did want to read a bit of a uh, viewer mail. If you will indulge me. Oh, um, What
1: well, will I, I will always <laughs> indulge that. <laughs> it is
0: from a listener named Aaron, And basically, they remark that they are a uh, first-time caller, long-time listener sort of situation. And it is interesting that we've covered what they talked about, and we covered it right after they sent us this message. It's almost like we're on a level with our with our fans, dude. We're 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 in their we're in their brains because they're 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 or maybe they're in our brains because they're uh, anticipating our every move.
1: We're the Randall Dowling of podcasts. <laughs> His brain expands. If you become, if you're within any near if you're near him at all, you are him.
0: <laughs> this is from uh Aaron Hardy. Uh hey guys, love all the stuff you've been doing lately. The way you guys break down most of nerd culture in the most intelligent way without talking down is amazing. I just got done listening to both your Greatest Weapons and Greatest Vehicles episodes, and I was wondering, why no shout-out to any giant mechs? Where does something like Mechagodzilla, the Jaegers from Pacific Rim, or even the Megazord from Power Rangers fit? Love you guys. Keep up the awesome work. So, yeah, Aaron H. So there you go. They, we did talk about the Jaegers in our, our Greatest Robots episode, which is interesting. I wrote him back saying, oh, we did an episode that tells you what we think about what the Jaegers are. We, we consider them more robot than vehicle.
1: That's true. And I will say, I believe we at least mentioned both the Megazord, the Jaegers and Mechagodzilla in that Robots uh, episode.
0: We did. That's what I'm saying. It's like, we're we're together. It's a telepathic link, baby. That Um, bond.
1: That unbreakable (laughs) bond.
0: Oh, and um, obviously, one uh, duo that we left out uh, is Kit and Michael Knight. But look at our vehicles episode, and you will definitely get my treatise on why fucking Kit and Michael Knight are the greatest. However, I cannot count them as a duo because he is a fucking machine. (laughs) <laughs> so I just ah, unless you got an organic brain, I can't have you be in my duo episode. I just had to
1: look. I'm going to do I'm going to do two duos that we hadn't mentioned, but deserve to be mentioned, even if we're not going to talk about them at all. The first Rock is going to be modern interpretations of Sherlock Holmes and Watson. I would include uh. both the BBC Sherlock and the Robert Downey Jr. Jude Law version of the movies, um, which are more partners than lead and sidekick. Mm-hmm. and then you know people have varying opinions i still think it's one of the most smartly written shows on tv rick and morty
0: you know what we got to talk about rick and morty real quick because i'm sorry fuck fuck a backlash uh also fuck that guy i don't care about justin oh Reuland. yeah I, I don't give a fuck about that that's not what we're talking about but i will say uh Sherlock holmes and watson we did talk about um watson on our uh greatest like sidekick episode yeah our, our greatest sidekicks in pop culture episode please consult that for our complete treatise on watson i think we said some really brilliant things on that not the not the least of which is that he is the person who tells the tale and the partner mm. so he cements the legend of sherlock holmes as well as being integral in it he's like a it's reportage. A lot of the stories are him reporting something that he's witnessed Sherlock do. Uh, and obviously he procures the cocaine.
1: Even Sherlock Holmes has got to have his plug. <laughs> Sherlock,
0: freaking it, Dude, that's fucked up. Watson's like, hey, how'd you get this so close to Sherlock Holmes? Man, my coke's so white, it went to Coachella. <laughs> you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh shit, oh, shit.
0: <laughs> so basically uh, Watson's the plug So, like, the greatest pop culture duo is Watson and Tony Montana <laughs> <laughs> oh shit
1: that should be a future episode <laughs> I'd read that duo just things that have nothing to do with each other but man I'd read that story
0: oh we, we should do that on a, on a Patreon but um, uh, before we get out of here Rick and Morty I gotta say look man I don't understand. And if you quibble with this, send us an email at emailthegreatestpod at gmail.com. That's email, E-M-A-I-L, thegreatestpod at gmail.com. That's our email address. Um, And leave us a five-star review on all of the different pod sources. Please do that. It really helps us move up the charts. Uh, And also join our YouTube page. But mm-hmm. Rick and Morty, I got to say, man, I think they're really emblematic of, of – it's reductive, yes, but there are Jerry's, there are Morty's, there are Summers, there are uh, whatever the fuck the mom's name is. Sorry, I'm not showing this. I love her. She's great. She's one of the Beth. stronger characters, Beth. There are, and there are Ricks, and there are people. And the beautiful thing is, there's so many people who think that they're Ricks. I think Rick shows how hyper competent you'd have to be to get away with Rick's behavior. So how about you in your own life, knowing how fucking incompetent and broken, dumb you are, don't act like Rick. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like I, didn't, I did not run out in the streets to try to be Tony Montana. I saw it as a cautionary tale. Maybe some of these fucking assholes who are fucking up the fandom. You know what I'm saying? Why is it that I join all the toxic fandoms besides Star Wars? You know what? Why I'm- is it that I keep joining all the toxic fandoms? Punisher,
1: Rick and Morty. What the fuck is wrong with me, Bill? Listen, I will say I, the Rick and Morty fandom has has kind of mellowed out since the whole Szechuan sauce thing. You know, there was there was a moment there when, like, the Rick and Morty fans just came on strong as, like, this is the greatest TV show ever written. And if you don't get it, you're a huge piece of shit and dumb. Mm-hmm. You're too dumb to get it. Like, right. those people, I think, have – I don't want to say they've gone away, but they've become way less um, everywhere online. Let's just say that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and the bottom line is, though, the in regards to stories, let's just really quickly, I think – Rick and Morty stories are very um, – I don't think of them as nihilistic. I think a lot of them have heart, and I think a lot of them show like the fact that even somebody like Rick yearns for love and acceptance and thinks he'll never get it. And even when he does get it, it's some kind of Faustian bargain, like when he was fucking that planet that was making all those dupes and shit. You know what I'm saying? That, that – yeah, yeah. I just – that – I'm affected by that stuff, and it's not – and it's not um, trying to be too deep, but I think the plots are written with a level of intelligence that's a a little higher than a lot of shows. Yeah. And I think, and lastly, I think somebody like the, when the the Morty Revolution one, and like oh we gotta go to Morty Town, and the Morty who like hated other Mortys and shit. You know that shit hit me because it's like, <laughs> God damn, this is like the, the 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 black cop and boys in the hood. You know what I mean? It's just yeah, cruising for he's cruising for your bruising. And he doesn't respect you as a person, even though he's exactly what you are. There's something palpable about a lot of the the metaphors and the messages in Rick and Morty, and they find a way to be very funny. I love
1: it. Rick and Morty, I think, is like existentialism without the pretentiousness of existentialism. The whole core idea of existentialism is the encounter with the absurd. Like when you realize that life has no meaning and you can't really explain why we're here, And you may not believe that. But if and when you get to the point where that's what you believe, you realize that all of existence is absurd. And within that, you have to find meaning in things like human connection and love. Mm -hmm. And like the show, for whatever faults you might see in it, is one of the best sort of vehicles for that idea that I've ever seen in pop culture. And I love it for that
0: abso-fucking and that is why rick and morty goes on this list and that is why they're they're uh, sort of i guess uh, some of the headliners of this uh, along with uh survivor batman island <laughs> you know survivor uh, survivor punisher <laughs> it's just just a punisher at the final travel council by itself with a bunch of dead bodies
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, the gun's still smoking yeah <laughs> yep uh so thank
0: you guys for listening to another partnered up rootin' tootin', back-to-back shootin' episode of The
1: Greatest pop.